This morning we have a couple young men to read for us from, the, from God's word. This is the lesson from the Gospels, Mark chapter 2, 23 through 36. Please stand for the lesson from the Gospels. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, Look, saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with withered hand. And then he watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that he may accuse him. And then he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it awful on the Sabbath to do good to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of the hurt. And said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched out, and his hand was resorted. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with Hyrians against him, how to destroy him. The world of the Lord. morning. We're going to be in this morning, as we do every morning these days, speaking more directly to the children among us. There's not too many this morning, so I'm going to look very closely at the kids who are with us. Are any of y'all familiar with The Little House on the Prairie? Read those books? No? It's a great series of books, kind of set in like the, uh, the Western Frontier, America, mid to late 1800s. Uh, but it's a whole series of books. Little House of Prairie is the most well-known, and it tracks uh, this little girl, Laura. And the girl is the, um, I think, daughter? Mother of the person who writes the books. It's about her life growing up. And uh, the second book is called Farmer Boy. And Farmer Boy tells the story of Laura's future husband and him growing up on a farm. Highly recommended. But the reason I bring it up because there's this one passage because it talks about what are Sundays like on the American frontier for a little boy named Almanzo who's about nine years old. And listen what his Sundays are like. After dinner, Eliza Jane and Alice, that's his older sisters, they did the dishes. But father and mother and Royal, Almanzo's older brother, and Almanzo, they did nothing at all. The whole afternoon, they sat in the drowsy, warm dining room Mother read the Bible. Eliza Jane read a book. Father's head nodded till he woke with a jerk. And then it began to nod again. Royal fingered the wooden chain that he could not whittle, and Alice looked for a long time out of the window. But Almanzo, this nine-year-old boy, he just sat. He had to. He was not allowed to do work. He was not allowed to play. He was not allowed to do anything else, for Sunday was not a day for working or playing. It was a day for going to church and a day for sitting still. 
Almanza was glad when it was time to do the chores. Can you imagine that, especially for only a few young boys out there this morning? But can you imagine going home after church and just sitting down the whole rest of the day? Like, you just go to your living room, park yourself on the couch, no TV on, you're not watching anything, but you just sit down and do nothing. For Almanzo, he was excited to do his chores because of how much he hated doing nothing. I imagine some of you might even be excited to go to school on Monday morning if all you did on Sunday was nothing. And today, for most of us, I think it's a little different. For them, at that time, Sabbath was a time for doing nothing. But for us, Sundays, I think, for many of us, they're really not that different from Saturday, except that we go to church in the morning. For us, we don't do nothing on Sunday. We do anything and everything on Sunday. But in the Bible, the Sabbath is not merely 60 to 90 minutes going to church, but it's called a day of rest. The Sabbath is a day of rest, an entire day of rest, and certainly it should include going to church, but it's so much more than that. So the proper practice of the Sabbath is not like Little House on the Prairie. It's not doing nothing. But the proper practice of the Sabbath is also not doing anything and everything. It's something entirely different. You know, I don't know how Christianity gets this reputation of a list of rules about do's and don'ts, but if, there, if there's anything that Jesus at his core is about, it's not do's and don'ts. Jesus has an entirely different view of the Sabbath. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And the main idea that I want you to get this morning, particularly for you children, is the Sabbath, this day of rest that God has designed and commanded for us, is a gift. The Sabbath is a gift from God for your good. The Sabbath is a gift from God for your good. So as we think about that, please join, me with, join with me in prayer. Father God, remind us this morning that you are a loving Heavenly Father who delights in giving good gifts to your children. And help us to see that the Sabbath is one of those gifts. Help us to see the many ways in which we take your laws and distort them in ways that you never intended how our hearts can easily become like that of the Pharisees. Convict convict us of our sin, Lord. Grant us a renewed understanding by your Spirit that we might properly understand your will for our lives and that it may go well with us as a result. We long to live lives that are pleasing according to your will, and it's wonderful that your will is for us to rest. We thank you for the rest that Jesus provides for us. It's in his holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so the Sabbath is God's gift for our good. We see that as we look at Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read for us again verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you, have you never read what David did? This is King David from the Old Testament. Did you not read what King David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence. Now, if you're not familiar with the bread of the presence, this is the bread that is in the altar that only Aaron and the other, and his sons, the other priests, are allowed to eat according to the law of God, the Torah. But David, when he is hungry and in need, 
with the men who are with him, they are allowed to eat the bread of the presence. And then Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now we read this, the Son of Man, or I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it might not sound like a big deal to our ears. But this is actually one of the most revolutionary things that Jesus says in all of the Gospels. The Sabbath was made for man. Because it completely upends what the Pharisees think about what the Sabbath is and what it's for. And not just the Sabbath, but the entire law of God. So what is the Pharisees, then, understanding of the Sabbath? Well, if you're not familiar with the Sabbath um, law, if it's in the Ten Commandments, but it's also found in Exodus 34, 21. And it says this, Six days you shall work, but the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. So it's a very, it's an agrarian society. You know, 99% of the people there are farmers who live off the land. And he says, six days you're going to do all your labor, but on one day you're going to rest. That's all it says about the Sabbath. So over time, the questions become, okay, if I'm supposed to rest on the Sabbath, what then defines rest? What defines work? How am I to know what I am and am not allowed to do on the Sabbath? And so for that, we, f- we go um, to the Mishnah, Shabbat, Tractate number 7, Section 2. Okay, so I-, I think I've said this multiple times, but we don't actually have records of precisely what rabbis at the time of Jesus were teaching. Sometimes we have hints of it based on kind of what Jesus says or later writings that we think captured what people believed at the time of Jesus. But we do have the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is the earliest recorded teachings of rabbis after the time of Jesus. And it comes from about 200 AD, so a couple hundred years after Jesus. Um, But we suspect that most of what they're teaching has very similar things to what Pharisees at the time of Jesus were teaching. Okay, so all that to say, there are 39 specific categories of labor that rabbis did not permit one to do on the Sabbath. And I'm just going to read for you a portion of them. And remember, this is a very agrarian society, so a lot of them have to do with farming. So uh, there's, famously it says there's 40 minus 1 categories of labor, 39, that are not permitted, including one who sows and one who plows, one who reaps and one who gathers sheaves in the pile, one who threshes, removing the kernel from the husk, one who winnows, winnows threshed grain in the wind, one who selects the inedible waste from the edible, one who grinds, one who sifts the flour in a sieve, one who kneads dough, and one who bakes. Basically, you can't do anything regarding uh, the cultivation or harvesting of wheat and production of food and bread on the Sabbath. And that's just 11 out of the 39 things that you can't do. What we find here in our passage is that Jesus doesn't necessarily decry the 39 things that you can't do. But what he is arguing against is the Pharisees' elevation of these man-made traditions, because at the end of the day, that's what they really are. These don't come from the Old Testament. These come from human traditions that have developed over time in people's attempt to obey God's law. But in doing so, Jesus says, you've forgotten the heart of the law. This is Jesus' revolutionary thought. Are you ready for this? God's laws are not meant to be a burden. God's laws are not intended to be a burden upon you. They're not intended to be a list of things that you can and cannot do and need to keep track of all the time. 
The heart of God's law, then, is the preservation and promotion of life in all its fullness and blessedness in God. And I was, just, I was just thinking about this, the fact that God gives us rules for our good. As parents, as many of us are, isn't that on our best days what we are too? We give our children many rules, but we hope that we do them for their good, what's for their best. Kids, it's not out of a desire to control or micromanage your lives. It's not out of desire to, that you wouldn't have any fun in your life. But on our best days, it's because, as God does, we give you rules because we think that's what's best for you. One controversial or kind of contentious topic these days that I was thinking of is like social media and screens. Many parents make rules surrounding social media because they don't believe it's in the best interest of their children and their lives. We don't do it because we don't want you to be the only one in your class or in your grade who misses out on that hilarious meme that everybody else is laughing about and you have no idea what you're talking about. We don't want you to feel left out. We don't want you to be socially ostracized. We don't want you to be bored. Well, most of the time, sometimes I, we do want our kids to be bored, as we often say, if they say, I'm bored, Dad. I say, good, I want you to be bored. That's great. Sometimes we need to be bored. We can't be always stimulated all the time. But we do it because if we believe it's for your good. Do you remember the book of Deuteronomy that we spent about 12 weeks this past year going over in the spring? Do you remember the common refrain after so many of God's laws and commands that he gave ancient Israel? What did he say? In order that it may go well with you. In order that it may go well with you. God wants good for his people. And he gives his people the exact formula for good just to follow your, his commands. God gives people rules for their good, including the Sabbath. So as we continue Mark chapter 3, it says this. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and we know very closely Mark intentionally puts these two situations side by side. And a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. Now, isn't this wild? They know Jesus has the ability to heal this man with a withered hand. And they're not marveling at that fact. Like, who has this power and ability? They're trying to trap Jesus, saying, is he going to use that ability on the Sabbath on which you cannot work? And Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful to save life or to kill it? But they were silent. And he looked around them at anger, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Verse 6, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So when Jesus asked the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? I can imagine, if you go home and you Google Mishnah, Shabbat, you'll see there's a huge, long list of rules and regulations on what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath and what the various penalties and punishments are if you do happen to do something. And I can imagine all the Pharisees going through this long list of things because they have memorized, if they're a good Pharisee, they know the entire list, but they're silent. And you know why? Because that whole long list, it has nothing. It says nothing about whether you should do evil or good. 
It has nothing about killing life. It has nothing about saving life. Because it's not moral regulations in that law. They're completely ceremonial. It sounds like this. It talks about one who builds a structure and one who dismantles it. You can't build anything. You can't break it down. One who extinguishes a fire and one who kindles a fire. But is there anything, like, is there any moral value in making a fire or putting out a fire? No, it just has to do with work, what you can or not allowed to do. It has nothing to do about preserving life, about healing people. Because that's not what the law of the Pharisees was focused on. The Pharisees are silent because their laws don't talk like Jesus. They have nothing to say about true, right, or wrong, good, or evil. Their laws merely have to do with rules and regulation. Because for the Pharisees, keeping the law has now become the point of the law. They keep the law because they think the purpose of the law is to keep the law. So if you go back to the social media rules that we make, what if in our house we make a rule that says no social media until the age of 18? I know. I know, very strict. But it's for your good. But it's for your good. And we keep the law. We don't, we don't sign up for any social media accounts, no Instagram, no TikTok, whatever, until the age of 18. But what if the day my child turns 18, they sign up for every single social media account available. And they spend, start spending all of their time on social media. Am I happy? Has the law accomplished its purpose? Do we say, we did it. We made it. We made it all the way to 18. We followed all the rules that we made. Good job. Is that the point of the law? Or is it so that all the years up to that point, we seek to cultivate a mind and a heart and a soul that loves the good, beautiful, and true, so that when that child turns 18, you believe they can make a wise and informed decision for themselves? Is that, is that not the point of the law? God gives us rules for our good. That's what the Sabbath is. So I'd like to share this morning two aspects of the Sabbath. There's, there's no way that I can capture fully uh, the biblical view of the Sabbath in just one sermon. But I want to just share two uh, ways in which the Sabbath is for our good in the way that the Bible presents it. So what the Sabbath is, it's two things. First, it's a recognition of who God is and his authority over all things. That's what the Sabbath represents. And secondly, the Sabbath represents an act of faith and trust in God that is an act of resistance against the idols that we find ourselves living in today. So first, the Sabbath is a recognition of God as the ultimate authority in our lives. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but have you ever considered how unnatural the seven-day week is? Like, why are there seven days in our week? Have you ever thought about that? Doesn't it seem somewhat random and arbitrary that there are seven days? And one of the reasons I might feel this way is because all the other ways that humans organize and divide our time, they're actually reflections of some sort of natural, observable phenomena in nature. So what is a day? Kids, anybody know what, what, what defines a day for us? How do you know a day has passed? 
Nighttime. There's daytime, there's nighttime. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. That is one day. What about a month? Anybody have ideas about a month? Kind of. Our months are typically based on the moon. So there's two, there's two ways that basically all cultures over time have divided times. It's either based on the moon or the sun. There's lunar calendars, which a lot of Asian cultures actually still use. There's a lunar new year, if you ever heard of that, celebrating the lunar new year. But then there's solar calendars, which the Western world is now. Anyways, all that to say, months are often based on lunar calendars, about uh, the cycles of the moon. What is a year? Yes. Yeah, it takes a really long time for the, the moon to go all the way, oh, I'm sorry, the, not the moon, the earth to go all the way around the sun, and that's reflected in observable natural phenomena. Even for those who didn't know that was, that was what was happening, they knew back in the ancient world that there was this cycle that would take one whole year, and they recorded it. But there's nothing in our natural world that indicates a grouping of seven days into a week. That in itself is a clue to its divine origins for us. So biblical scholars, a lot of times what biblical scholars will do is they'll take ancient Israelite practices and they'll try to look around all over the ancient world and say, what do these practices correspond to? Do we find anything analogous in any other culture? And we've done our best. And there's nothing. No other culture has a practice like the Sabbath. A seven-day week with one day of rest. It seems a truly phen- a phenomenon truly unique to ancient Israel and Judaism. And I think that's because the Sabbath arises out of the unique conception of the Israelite view of how God created the world. Because in how many days did God create the heavens and the earth? According to Genesis 1. Six. He created the world in six days. It says, thus the heavens, and the, this is Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter two, which summarizes what happened in Genesis chapter one. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host in them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God did everything in six days. And then he sets apart a seventh day to rest from everything that he had made. Now the question for us is, why did God rest? Was he tired? Did he work really, really hard for six days? And he was just like, I'm exhausted. I need to at least rest for a day to recover from those six days of hard work. No. That's not why God rests. Why he ceases from activity. God rests on the seventh day because he's done. Because he's finished everything that he was supposed to do. He rests on the seventh day because there's nothing left to do in creation. He rests because he's the great king, Lord over all things, who takes his rightful place on the throne. In one sense, the seventh day is completely unnecessary because everything was accomplished in six days, but the seventh day, it's a gift. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the seventh day, is a gift from God to mankind. You see, God could have made a six-day week. He could have said, I made everything in six days, and then boom, we're going back to the beginning of the week. But God gives us a day of rest because he establishes a divine pattern in our life that we follow as we imitate God. You work, and then you rest. You work, 
and then you rest. Not because you are God, but precisely because you're not God. The seven-day weekly pattern, then, with the Sabbath day of rest is a gift for mankind because it teaches us about our proper relationship to God. It's a regular reminder every week that God is the king on the throne that we are created to share in his rest. God is sharing, God sharing his rest with us is built into the very fabric of our days. So first, the Sabbath is a reminder that God is the ultimate authority in our lives. And secondly, Sabbath is an act of faith and resistance against the gods and idols of our own age. You see, for an agrarian society, which we are not, but for an agrarian society, one in which farming is the kind of the backbone of most people's livelihood, there's no more subversive activity that you can do than to rest from your labor. For the farmer, there's always more that can be done. But what it requires is radical trust in the Lord. Because it's not that the Jewish farmer has any less work than the Egyptian farmer or the Babylonian farmer. They all have the same amount of work. The Jewish farmer just has a day less to do it. And if he's unable to do the same amount of work in less time, then what is the Jewish farmer's option? He's at the mercy of God. He has to trust in the Lord, that the Lord will bring him enough food to sustain him and his family and his community in those six days of work compared to seven for everybody else. There's a book that came out in the last couple years. You might have read it or heard of it. It's called The Relentless Elimination of Hurry. But it's a book by a pastor and an author, and he makes this bold claim. And he says this. This is a paraphrase. But the greatest enemy of following Jesus in modern-day present America is hurry. The frenetic pace of modern American life. And I don't know if he's right. You know, there could be a host of other things that make it difficult to follow Jesus in America. But I think he may be right. It might not be universally true, but in many of the circles that I know many of us operate in, it can often seem like we're all addicted to hurry. And oftentimes, hurry in our lives stifles an appreciation and a sense of God's presence in our lives. So I don't, I don't know if you ever had this interaction before. Someone says, how are you? Or you ask someone how, how they are, and what do they say? I'm busy. Is that really an answer to the question? How are you doing? I'm busy. Is that a state of being? Is that a feeling? But there's a sense in which we wear busyness kind of like a, like a badge of honor. Like, I'm, I'm busy. You know, life is good, but it's busy. We're all busy. We're all going somewhere. We're all doing things. And we laugh at this image of little boys going home after church, unable to sit still. But I wonder how many of us can sit still. But why is it so hard for so many of us to stop? Why is it so hard for us to Sabbath? To take time to pray? to be quiet and meditate on scriptures, to even take a nap on the Sabbath. These are acts of resistance against the gods and idols of our age. Things like efficiency, productivity, multitasking, getting things done. To rest from one's labor is to reject the culture's definition of value or success. 
which says, you are what you do, or you are what you create, you are what you contribute to this company, you are what you accomplish in your career. Are you defined by how much money you make, how influential you are, how many important decisions that you're involved in? But not all of us have idols of work or success. For some of us, it might be something else. Maybe our idols, physical beauty and appearance. Like, we just really, really care what we look like and what other people think of us. So maybe Sabbath for you looks like not wearing makeup one day out of the week or not going to the gym that one day, not being so strict about your diet that one day. And the point is not necessarily that we live one way for six days and then just live differently for one day out of those seven Like, that's not the point. Again, that becomes more of a do and a don't. The point is that in seizing on that one day, whatever it has its hold on you, whether it's work, success, physical appearance, beauty, whatever it is that has a higher place in your life than God, the hope is that in seizing that one day, its power over you will weaken. Little by little. And over time, it will lose its power over you because you have this weekly reminder about who the true God is. And as Jesus said, where true life is found. See, God grants you freedom to say no to all those things I've mentioned and so many more. God grants you freedom to rest, to reset, to be reminded about who the true authority is in your life and the world, to properly reorder your life and your values and commitments in a way that reflects and recognizes the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord in and over all things. So the Sabbath is God's gift for us for our good. Right. It reminds us who's in control, who is the real authority in our lives, and it's an opportunity that we have to express our faith in that God. So if I have convinced you that keeping the Sabbath is a good thing for our good, something that we should try to pursue, then you may be wondering how exactly to keep the Sabbath. I think that's a great question to ask. But again, first, it's important to remember the wrong way of keeping the Sabbath, like the Pharisees. The wrong way would be to replace the Pharisees' list with our own list of do's and don'ts on the Sabbath. That's not what the goal is. What I love about following Jesus and as it applies to the Christian Sabbath, is the freedom that God gives us. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. The Sabbath might look different for every individual or every family here because God created us all differently. All of us are in different circumstances. But what will look the same is that God says the way that you can follow Sabbath is by following Jesus and looking to him. That's what's incumbent upon everybody. But I will offer you a diagnostic question that can help you to understand and think about how you might follow the Sabbath and pursue Christ in the midst of it. Here's the question. Are the things that you are pursuing, the things that you are busying yourself with, are these things supporting life? Are they leading to life's flourishing? Or are they destroying life? Are the things that you are pursuing leading to life or away from it? In biblical language, if you take the words of one of the most famous and most well-beloved psalms out of all the psalms, Psalm 23, remember what it says? God, he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores 
my soul. The fact that God restores our souls and implies that our souls often need restoring. It says that the way that we do life and pursue things can adversely affect our souls, that we become so distracted and disconnected from God and one another and even ourselves that we need to be restored. The Sabbath is a gift from God for our good, for the restoration of our souls. So the question is, what restores your soul? What makes you happy in God? I'm guessing, I brought my phone up just for this, I'm guessing it doesn't involve this. It doesn't involve a screen. Probably doesn't involve entertainment, media consumption. It may be times of silence and solitude in the presence of God, perhaps while experiencing the stillness and solitude of nature, God's unmediated presence. It might involve times of true human connection, uninterrupted, unmediated, intentional time with your spouse, family, and friends. You know, think about how rare that is sometimes. Meals around a table. You know, the problem, some of us may be so disconnected from our souls that it's even difficult to answer that question of what restores us. If, if, if I ask, what restores your soul? And you're just thinking like, I don't know, because it's been such a long time when I've actually felt that sense of peace in the presence of God. Well, here are a few suggestions that might help you to answer that question. Soul-restoring activities are pursued as ends in and of themselves. And what that means is so much of what we do is a means to another end. You remember that great movie about the Sabbath, Chariots of Fire? If you don't know this story, this is about uh, this long-distance runner, Eric Little, who is unwilling to race because on, the sa- on Sundays because of his dedication to his Christian faith. He has a great life story, amazingly world-class runner, yet loves the gospel even more than that and essentially becomes a martyr for the faith. But wonderful story, wonderful movie. But do you remember that famous line from the movie? He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. When Eric Little runs, he feels God's pleasure, which is crazy, because I don't know if any, we've all run before. Very few of us feel God's pleasure when we run, but why did he feel God's pleasure? It's because he ran as a means, or I'm sorry, he ran as an end in itself, and not as a means to a greater end. He's not like us running in the morning to somehow stay healthy, or to like justify the food that we eat. He's running because he loves to run, and when he runs, he feels God's presence. He pursues running as a end in itself. Eric Little, can he experiences that. He knows that. What is that for you? Soul-restoring activities are pursued as ends in and of themselves. Secondly, soul-restoring activities have at their heart the pursuit and enjoyment of God and his good gifts. God created this good world for us to share in his rest. Activities that have at their heart the pursuit of God in those things restores our souls. And this one, uh, the last one, the third one I have, is kind of something that you uh, realize kind of after the fact. But soul-restoring activities, they don't induce within us feelings of guilt or self-loathing. 
Right? I think many of the activities that we do that we think will possibly make us feel better, possibly bring rest to us, actually in the end make us feeling worse. What are those things for you? Remember, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's God's gift to you. The Sabbath is a gift from God for our good, and I hope that we'll all consider how we can spend one day each week seeking to be happy in God, seeking the only one who can truly restore our souls. But it would be incomplete of us if we were to stop there. Because as wonderful as it is to feel the true Sabbath rest of God, this Sabbath rest in the Bible that we find is always a proxy meaning it's always something that's pointing us to a deeper and truer and fuller rest. A rest that we can never really experience in this life alone. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this rest. And in the author, and in it the author says this, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Meaning Sabbath rest is something that comes in the future. True Sabbath rest remains for you in the future. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, that's kind of confusing. On the one hand, it says Sabbath rest has come in the future, but on the other hand, it says you've already entered into God's rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And what this means is that those who are in Jesus Christ have truly entered into God's rest here and now. Yet, as Christians, we still anticipate a fuller and deeper and truer rest that will come when Christ comes again. And this is what it means when Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. When Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, it's because he has accomplished the work of salvation upon um, on behalf of his people, and then he rests. Do you remember how I said way back in Genesis 1, God creates the pattern of our lives, work and then rest, work and then rest. God himself, he created in six days, and then he rested. He took his rightful place in the universe as the authority overall. Jesus he follows God's established pattern. Jesus fully accomplished the work of salvation for every single one of us. And then what does he do? He rests. He sits down at the right hand of God the Father, showing that he too is in authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. As Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. He's done it all. You don't have to strive to make more of yourself. You don't have to earn your worth before God and others. You don't have to make yourself matter You don't have to squeeze every single ounce out of this short life that we have that the Bible describes as but a mere breath. You don't have to do all those things. You can rest. Why? Because Jesus has accomplished your rest for you. The Lord of Sabbath has finished it and he offers his rest out for you. You see, the weekly rest that God has built into our days that he designs and desires for us is a foretaste of the heavenly rest that awaits each one of us. If we, if we strive to enter it, if we hold on to it by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what we said, the theme of Mark is, see Jesus as he is. Church, do you see Jesus as he is, Lord of the Sabbath, calling out to you to enter into his rest, 
These beautiful words in the gospel. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. God, is there any greater gift that you give us than rest for our souls? It seems like we busy ourselves actively working against rest as if it were a bad thing. Yet your word reminds us that it is the one thing that we truly need and we thank you so much that you have um, integrated one day of rest as a reminder that we are not God, that we are not in control of all things, but that we humbly live in service to you. Father God, I pray that you might give us wisdom as we follow after Christ to know what true rest looks like in our lives, that our, tr- that our souls might truly be restored in order that we might be sustained in this life and in the life to come. We thank you for the church family that you've given us that, as Boving said, that the Sabbath is the best of all days because in it we gather together with our church family and we love and encourage one another. We, we join together in praises to you as a way to restore our souls. I pray that every Sunday that we have at church would be a part of that soul restoration process that you are doing within us. And I pray as we finish this service and praise to you, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with faith and joy and gladness that we might be happy in you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.